right? Also, I see the enjoyment. I see the celebratory. And I'm not saying like one thing, you know, like erase the other. I'm saying there are much more layers that we need to focus when we talk about Black women. Because when reproducing histories of pain, histories of oppression, we're just boxing a population in a narrative where colonization keeps winning. And the reason why we exist, the reason why we are here, the reason these women created all the sounds and all the music and all in their life itself is because actually colonization didn't win. We're here. Like if, you know, like colonization was successful, will we disappear? And we're not like, we didn't only not disappear, but we created, at least in Lima, something so beautiful and so strong that a black woman now can be equated to a whole country. Welcome to Urban Limitrophe, a Toronto-based podcast exploring the global African experience by highlighting the various initiatives happening in cities across the African continent and occasionally the diaspora to creatively solve problems, support communities, create vibrant urban spaces, and build better cities overall. I'm your host, Alexandra, and join me as I explore this episode's topic. This episode is sponsored by the University of Toronto School of Cities. The School of Cities convenes urban-focused researchers, educators, students, practitioners, and the general public to explore and address complex urban challenges with the aim of making cities and urban regions more sustainable, prosperous, inclusive, and just. To learn more about their work, visit schoolofcities.utoronto.ca. This episode is also co-sponsored by the University of Toronto's Department of Geography and Planning. To learn more about their work and the different undergraduate and graduate programs available, please visit geography.utoronto.ca. In this episode of Urban Limitrophe, I chat with Roxana Escobar-Nanez. If you've listened to the previous episode of the podcast, then that name might sound really familiar, as Roxana was one of the five amazing guests that I had joined me for a discussion in February to celebrate Black History Month and their unique research interests as fellow U of T students studying in the field of geography and planning. Roxana is a PhD student studying human geography, and I decided to invite her back again for another chat to dive deeper into her work studying the city of Lima, Peru's sonic landscapes, because it's a topic I've never heard of before, and I was interested to understand how this relates to her other unique focus on Afro-Peruvian people, culture, and particularly Afro-Peruvian women's role in shaping the soundscapes and culture of this vibrant city. My name is Roxana Escobar-Nanez. I'm a PhD candidate at the Geography and Planning Department at the University of Toronto. I'm from Peru. I came to do first a master's and now the PhD to do of me. And my research is on the ways in which Afro-Peruvian women relate to the music scene in the city of Lima, the capital city of Peru. Yeah, and that's what uh, really interested me about your work because it's the only work I've seen so far <laughs> that kind of broaches that topic of like music and culture and then also women and then also Afro-Peruvian women in that in that way. And so, um, and I know the term that you use for that is like sonic landscapes. And that was like really new to me. And so I was wondering if you could 
yeah, explain more about your research and how it's exploring, um, like you said, exploring the places that Afro-Peruvian women hold in Lima sonic landscapes. So can you explain more about like what are sonic landscapes and why is it so important for them to be explored? Okay, so I come from uh, two different theoretical frameworks that actually they're different, but they're inspired, I believe. They inspired each other. There are Black geographies, particularly Black women's geographies and Latinx colonial geographies. So both Latinx colonial geographies and Black geographies, they come from a tradition of feminist geographies and Black feminist thought and indigenous geographies and indigenous theories and indigenous philosophies, right? So together for me, they're a good way, they're a good framework for me to understand the places of Afro-Peruvian women because slavery in Peru started like with colonization, the Spanish colonizations in the 1500s. And it was a system that stayed in the territories, like in Peru, but also in the territories of the whole Americas, you know, like Central America, South America, North America uh, for hundreds of years. But at the same time, what is very particular about Peru and countries such as Peru, like Ecuador, Bolivia, Chile, is uh, that we have a large, like a large majority of indigenous peoples. So the system of slavery and well, the whole colonization project from the Spanish and the Portuguese, for example, in Brazil, was to eliminate, you know, like as always, indigenous populations and you know, colonize and use our lands. But what happened in real life is that when they, even though the colonizers tried really hard to keep the population separated, you know, like indigenous peoples in one particular geographical location or like particular types of labor and the Afro-descendant people or the African people in all other types of labor. <clears throat> At the end of the day, that actually didn't happen. And what happened in real life is that they live together, they share spaces, they mix constantly. So I am the product of that, you know, like my mom has indigenous roots and my father, he is Afro-Peruvian. Uh, and also like I have a grandmother who has the same mix as me and I have probably an, an ancestor who was in Spaniard as well, you know, like, so all that mixing is what really happens, even though the project was to avoid that mixing, right, and to keep like a white elite at the center of the government and the power and, and to keep, you know, like all the people of color separated so like they count, they count you know, like, contrarrest the power. So that's called mestizaje, the whole mixing of peoples and cultures and sonic like sounds and spaces that can be all understood as mestizaje. But the Spaniards, they had a project, it's called a project mestizaje. And that project was to basically whiten the population right, to make the population like either African population or indigenous population to mix them with the European population and try to create a new race. It was going to be, a, 
is even called by Vasconcelos, he's a Mexican scholar, a cosmic race. And it was, it, it, according to them, for some reason, it was gonna be like the best race ever because it will have, you know, like indigenous roots that they were very much appreciated because we have like, generally many, many, you know, like indigenous, they are considered like indigenous empires. They were very big, very strong. They have a very well known of the territory, of the geographies of nature. They were actually very well respected by the Spanish as well when they arrived to the Americas. So it was like, okay, so let's mix these good attributes from the indigenous people with the better attributes from the white people, maybe we leave the African people behind. And this mixing is gonna be the creation of a new race, the best race in the new world. So that project was the project of Mestizaje to basically make indigenous people white and to make them, you know, like maybe there's some relationship with the land because you have indigenous roots, but you have European culture. So indigenous languages were completely erased. They weren't, you know, like uh, appreciated at all during the colonization time. Uh, Spanish became the most important language for the whole Americas, except Brazil. They have the same thing, but with the Portuguese. Um, so what you have in Latin America is the project of mestizaje, which was basically wishful thinking, you know, like let's mix in this way, in the best way. This is the only way for me to mix. And then you have mestizaje as it happened in real life, which is like, they all live together. They all mix. And we are the result of that. Uh, in that mixing, sounds were mixed to. And that's how my research comes to be. In that mixing, you have, you know, like in very particular spaces of the city of Lima, uh, they are close to downtown Lima, poor people used to live. And that poor people could be pure Europeans, indigenous people, Andean people, peasants, and African descendant people or African people. They were sharing the same space. Uh, they were living together. They were having families together. And eventually they start mixing their own cultural uh, products. And one of those cultural products is music. So uh, one particular subculture an urban subculture that is the development of that mixing is what it's called right now in Lima, Criollo Music or Criollo culture. So my thesis, what it studies is what are the places of Afro-Peruvian women in that particular music, in that particular culture. Because now in Lima, when you think about Criollo culture, it's usually related to the performance of a black woman. Uh, so it can be black women performing, you know, like dances, singing as musical producer, but also as cooks, you know, like also like, for example, for Independence Day, that is July 28th and July 29th in Peru, uh, usually 
the image that you see for the celebration of independence is a black women cookie. Even though Peru is an Andean country and is well known like outside of the country for the Incas, for the indigenous populations, you know, but inside of the country, like the relationship between blackness and culture is very strong. Particularly in the city of Lima, that was a black city, for example, into the, like the ends of the 1800s, I believe it was like 70% of the population was black of African descent. So Lima was a black city for many, many, many years. And when I say a black city, it means like not only demographically, but also culturally. You know, like the food that was sold on the street was usually prepared by black women who were going out and walking on the street, selling the food and singing songs about the food. So one part of the sonic landscapes that I'm analyzing, and then I go into the, the, the explanation of what is a sonic landscape. When you think about the landscape in geography, particularly, you think about a space that is, you know, like constructed by different influences but it's like a wide space. It's not, for example, like a, a bus stop, right? There is a concrete space. It is something that is overarching a landscape. And a sonic landscape for me is a place actually that is being influenced by sound and by music. And I believe Lima is that. Uh, Lima is a very musical city Peru in general is a very musical country, but Lima is a very, very musical city. And the ways in which Lima's cultural identity has developed over the years is very much around music and cultural production around music. And Afro-Peruvian women are key for that cultural identity. So I just wanna understand with my research, uh, how are, are these women related to uh, Lima's cultural identity, but at the same time, how music, Black music, or music reproduced by Black women is at the center of how Lima came to be as a city. And with that, I'm hoping to recreate the history of the city from the performance of Black women. So that's why my thesis focuses on them but particularly like black women in criollo spaces, black women doing criollo music. But particularly I focus on one specific place in which criollo music comes to be that is called a Peña Criolla. So a Peña Criolla is a venue where criollo music and black music is performed. So I'm doing a case study on one particular Peña Criolla that is uh, owned by two Afro-Peruvian women since the 70s. And they've been doing this party for 40 years now, every Friday. And it's such an amazing space for me to start my research because they are the ones, like these two sisters, the Lopez sisters, they are the ones who sing, they are the ones who cook, they are the ones who dance, they host. So like the whole space is around them. It's a Criollo space that is embodied in these two women. And, and that for me is very important because 
you know, like what kind of musical venue can you name hold by Black women for so many years that continuously reproduce a history of the city? So sonic landscapes are those kind of things for me, are like the ways in which a space is being created and reproduced and rethink through music, through sound, but particularly the sound that is uh, at the same time being reproduced by Afro-Peruvian people, Afro-Peruvian women, and the mixing of it, right? Because Criollo music is a reproduction of like black rhythms with Spanish rhythms, with European, other European rhythms and indigenous rhythms. So like it's not black music. We have Afro-Peruvian music that is black music. Criollo music is not only black music. It's black music mixed with other things. And for me, that's very important. And that's the focus of my research because that, that is for me the history of the city. That you, that the musical geographies of the city comes from that mixing, that mixing of sounds. So sound, space, time, gender, and race are at the base of my research. Yeah, that's sounds really amazing. To be honest, <laughs> I didn't expect that. Like you really gave a full. Obviously, it's what this is the focus of your research. So you know all this information, but you really, uh, uh, I think, encapsulated all of that really beautifully. And I like what you're saying about, yeah, how the sounds of the city and and the intersection with race and all these different histories come together into what are these sonic landscapes, but also ultimately shape the life, the, like also contemporary life within the city through these Creole spaces that you are um, exploring. Um, and so you, you touched on it a little bit. Actually, you said a lot of things that were really interesting to me. So I'm just trying to like pinpoint <laughs> the ones because there was a lot there. But one thing I thought that was really interesting was that, um, yeah, you said that there's like, like uh, let's say Afro-Peruvian music that's like like Black music. And then there's other ones that it, the Creole music that is more a mixture of this. So I guess I was wondering what is, um, what are the characteristics that distinguish, let's say, that Afro-proven music from this other, from these other sounds that you're hearing? Well, Afro-Peruvian music is a recreation of black rhythms in the well, in Peru, right? In the territory that is known as Peru. And it's very interesting actually, because we had. Uh, many different peoples from the African continent coming into Peru. People who couldn't, you know, understand each other because they came from different countries, different ethnicities, uh, different territories. But it seems like one thing that was holding them together was music and was sound and was particularly a culture of enjoyment, a celebratory culture. Uh, so parties are very important for, you know, like, the identity, but not only the identity, but the ways in which they relate, African people relate to the space. You know, like partying, music, movement was very important. And Afro-Peruvian rhythms come from that. That's the lineage that created Afro-Peruvian rhythms. So it has particular instruments that replicate the sounds of African instruments. Uh, so we have one particular instrument that is called cajon. Cajon Afro-Peruano, which is like a drum box. 
that is at the base of almost every Afro-Peruvian sound. And also we have one instrument too, that is uh, the jaw of a donkey. Yeah, I've seen that. <laughs> you've seen that, yeah, yeah. yeah, you've seen that. They produce a beautiful sound, mm -hmm. right? And, and obviously the lyrics are a reflection of being black in Peru, of being black in Peru and the relationship with the African continent or even the constant, uh, even talking about the constant mixing of, you know, like the populations in the city. Uh, and also like Afro-Peruvian people, they do not live only in Lima, they live in other parts of the country as well. So you have in the, in the North Coast, in the South Coast, two Afro-Peruvian people in the Andes as well. So all of that is considered Afro-Peruvian music, the production of Black music in our territory. It, it definitely sounds different. It definitely relates to African sounds. You know, like it's, you know, like when you do like a kind of like a research around the Americas, when you are looking for African sounds or like Afro-descendant sounds, like from, you know, like Puerto Rico to Brazil to Peru, like, they sound very similar because it's the same kind of reproduction, right? Like trying to bring whatever they remembered and they created and they thought and they felt like rhythm and music was, was for them, but in our territories, in the America's territories. And that's why the creation of a specific instrument. And obviously the mixing is, all, is also present, right? Like blackness is not, a fixed reality or a fixed entity. Uh, it is constantly reproduced and challenged and spatialized in different ways. And music, Patrick McKintrick, which is my idol, <laughs> um, she says very clearly, music spatializes blackness. And I believe that's true. I believe that the ways in which, you know, like the living experiences of blackness can be encountered and can be understood through music and through the sounds. Um, and, and it's embodied, you know, like in, in different ways. Like we in Lima, for example, we enjoy black music, we dance black music, we learn the rhythms and the sounds and the dances when we are in high school, not in like in middle school, you know, like growing up. And not necessarily everyone who is dancing black rhythms are black or are Afro descendants, but blackness is there. It is constantly present. Is for example, the best example that I have for this idea of how music specializes blackness is uh, the coach of the Boys Peru, one of the coaches of the Boys Peru. She's a black woman. Her name is Eva Young. And when she's, and she's a, she's a black woman who sings criollo music. So that's another way, way in which blackness is being spatialized, right? Like she's, she's entering with her blackness, with her body, with her performance into other categories of music as well. A type of music that is very well known in a city, but it's also very well known nationally, right? 
So like, even though she's not, let's say, reproducing black music, she as a black woman is reproducing music that is actually at the end of the day, specializing blackness and the ways of being black in Peru. And when she's described in the, in the show, her name is Eva Young, right? So she's like, Eva Young, one of the most important criollo singers of the country can even be described as Peru herself of as Peru itself. So it's like, oh damn, a black woman became a country. <laughs> yeah. Through music. Mm -hmm. So that's how music is, you know, like music specializes blackness definitely, constantly. Like when you are in a bus in Lima, like I, like I mentioned before, Lima is a very musical city. So radios are, you know, like on constantly. Music is absolutely everywhere when you go to the city. So if you're in a bus in the city, like moving from one point to the other, in the bus, you're going to listen to music. Like the driver is going to put music very loudly for everyone to enjoy it. And usually that music, it can be different rhythms <clears throat> because we, we have different rhythms in the city. So it can be cumbia, it can be salsa, it can be rock, pop, ballads, whatever there is. But sometimes it's, sometimes it's criollo music because that's the music that the city enjoys as well. And sometimes you're gonna be, you know, like in the bus, listening to a song sing by Eva Young which is like the singer that I mentioned before. And, and there you go, like you're moving through the city, listening to a black woman singing feel your music. So like blackness is actually everywhere. Uh, and it's represented and be transformed and understood in different ways through music. And that's why my, my, my thesis is trying to see, oh, okay, so, I get that. I see the importance of music and blackness and a celebratory culture in this particular city. Uh, but it seems like the majority of the performance are Afro-Peruvian women. So how come we haven't talked in history about them? Through that lens of them reproducing spaces through music, of them creating spaces through music, or of them becoming spaces, like themselves through music. So that's at the base of my thesis as well. And that's why when I, when, when you ask, you know, like the difference between criollo music and black music. So there are different, you know, like when you hear them, different instruments, different influences, uh, criollo music has at the base, European rhythms like polkas, Waltz, mm -hmm. you know, like things like that. But also they have the Afro-Peruvian drum box together. And the lyrics of the song probably comes from an Andean lyric, uh, an Andean song. So all that mixing being, you know, like performed by a black woman. So that's Criollo music. That's how Criollo culture uh, specializes as well in the city is very much present everywhere. If you go to Lima for the first time and you ask, where should I go for a good party? They will send you to a Criollo venue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Immediately, because in that Criollo venue, you will have the food, you will have the performance. And also by like in that 
and it's so interesting because in that Criollo venue, you're going to have Afro-Peruvian musicians playing Afro-Peruvian music. Those musicians probably also playing Criollo music. Those musicians also playing Andean music, playing music from the Andes or from the Amazon jungle. Uh, and different ballets of dancers, you know, like from different regions of Peru. So you kind of have a taste, like everything is like together in this venue and you kind of have a taste of the whole country. And that's how the city of Lima actually works. You know, like the city of Lima is the biggest city of the country and it has one third of the population of the country. So 11 million people live there. And those 11 million people are from the different regions of the country. So we are like in a sense um, in Lima, we're constantly in mestizaje, right? Not the project that the Spaniards imagine, but like just are living together and or reproducing our lives and our spaces uh, together constantly. And these venues, these criollo venues are in, in essence that. It's a little taste of how Lima is like. Yeah. No, that's a beautiful picture that you've painted and I like that <laughs> that these spaces are a taste of Lima of overall of all these different cultures and how they come together but what I also really loved what but what you were saying was that um what you're saying about music um it's kind of like how you understand blackness and 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 learning about these cultures and I guess in a way connecting to your roots whatever the mixture of roots may be because I know in a previous episode I was speaking with um, Elise Gomez and we were talking also about um, music and from a North American perspective how we connected back to the continent um, she was mentioning how she started listening to hip-hop music and she, she's from France so she was listening to hip-hop music to understand more about black culture and then eventually going back and listening to music from like you know the African continent and I was saying I, I went through a similar <laughs> kind of like journey in terms of um, trying to understand and embodying um, these different themes and these different stories through the lyrics, through the, the actual sounds, the rhythms and how that speaks to you. And then also thinking about like my own family background, um, half of my family is from Congo. And then um, in Congo, one of the, um, just recently the uh, particular genre of music called the uh, rumba Congolese was put mm -hmm. on the UNESCO heritage list. And it's still kind of like, blows my mind to think that like a like a music a particular sound uh, a sound that's a, like a mixture of all these different things can be like kind of encapsulated into a kind of like a heritage registry in that way and that just speaks to the power I think of music and culture and how like you said it in, in within it you'll find history within it within it you find um, community you find culture you find all these different things so that's really interesting yeah and like I'm glad that you just mentioned this because like rumba is at the base of rhythm for many African, you know, like Afro-descendant sounds in the region of Latin America. So, and it's like one of the most mentioned words when you are partying. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah. yeah. So let's rumba. Like let's rumba means like, oh, we wanna, we're going to the dance floor. We're going to mm -hmm. do this. Mm -hmm. So... So yeah, like even in, in, in those settings is how we see blackness being spatialized, right? How it travels from one continent to the other and it remains strong. It changed, it developed in different ways. It went to other, it probably has different meanings 
in different ways in which, you know, like bodies and people are um, living it, enjoying it, and producing it, but it stays strong. And, and that for me is, you know, like where we should turn the focus when we think about Black lives and, and Black geographies, particularly in Black women's geographies is that we, as Catherine McKintry says, when we study the geographies of Black people, we tend to study geographies of oppression. Yeah. Right? We're talking about geographies of slavery, mm-hmm. usually. But at, at the center of this is actually the study of pain. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think, well, it has always been important, but what I'm trying to do with my thesis is to say, yes, pain is obviously a huge part of why we are here and why our life has developed in the ways that it has developed, but it's not the center of our constant living and our existence, right? So I am trying to move away from geographies of pain and focus on performance geographies that obviously talk about pain, that obviously embrace pain, but it's not the center of our lives. And, you know, like, particularly when talking about Black women, like talking about Black women's suffering has become usually the only lens in which you can understand Black women. And you can testify this, that is not true. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. not only because of your lived experience, but like, you also grew up in a Black family. I did the same. I seen these women obviously being impacted by pain and racism and misogyny, but also not defining their life as such. Right? Also, I see the enjoyment. I see the celebratory. And I'm not saying like one thing, you know, like erase the other. I'm saying there are much more layers that we need to focus when we talk about Black women. Because when reproducing histories of pain, histories of oppression, we're just boxing a population in a narrative where colonization keeps winning. And the reason why we exist, the reason why we are here, the reason these women created all the sounds and all the music and all in their life itself is because actually colonization didn't win. We're here. Like if, you know, like colonization was successful, will we disappear? And we're not like, we didn't only not disappear, but we created at least in Lima, something so beautiful and so strong that a black woman now can be equated to a whole country. So for me, that was like, it doesn't make sense to keep doing geographies of oppression or to keep analyzing Black women from this lens. You know, like, I will obviously engage and talk and discuss the different ways in which Afro-Peruvian women's lives are being constantly um, oppressed. I will talk about that in my thesis for sure because I cannot avoid that. That's part of their life as well. But I'm trying to shine where they shine. And they shine in celebratory cultures as well. 
they shine in performances. They shine through music. They have created, they have collaborated in a city's identity. That's not only true pain. So I'm just trying to maybe not rewrite history, but like give it a more layered nuance. Try to have another geography that can speak to black women and see them, you know, like not only as part of a territory or as part, as part of a country, see them as the country, see them as creators of spaces as well, see them as reproducers of knowledge and culture and, you know, like urban spaces that probably wouldn't exist without them. And like an urban culture and an urban music that probably wouldn't be as important as it is for the country, for Peru, if it wasn't for them. So that's not only pain, right? So I resist, I refuse to only focus on pain. Because I, like I mentioned before, not only because, you know, like, it, it is obviously part of my own positionality as a decolonial scholar, but also because I see them, like I lived it, I, I taste it. Like I know that's not the only way of being black woman is true. Like I know it, I seen it, like I hold them. So it is it's very personal, this thesis for me because, and I know it's very niche, it's very much located in one particular neighborhood in the city of Lima. But at the same time, I think it's a good way of starting a conversation of like, how do we understand and study black women? And when do we talk about joy? Because it's important. Yes, yes, a thousand times yes. I love everything you just said. You're literally speaking my language because, um, yeah, <laughs> sorry, I'm just processing it all, even getting a little <laughs> emotional thinking about it because no, you you really hit the nail on the head and it's something that I've been thinking about for many years and many months and in terms of just like the books that we read either in school or outside of school, the way, even just thinking about like Black History Month in general is a like a concept and a lot of what we, and obviously there is celebration of the creativity that is being done by Black people around the world. But a lot of it does focus on pain. And from a young age to like even now, it's 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 kind of like um, they hit you on the head with the pain that's being experienced by Black people all the time. And I think that they forget the lens uh, when we're talking about Black people, Black women and Black people just in general, we forget about the the joy and the celebration and 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 through that joy uh, is, is what has carried like all of us allowed us to overcome or continue to overcome the different oppressions that we're dealing with like you said every day is not it, although there are there's like struggles and there's oppression that's happening ultimately it doesn't encapsulate every waking moment of your life you know you find pockets of joy and um and that's what gets you through that's what makes you human as we all do we have our ups and our downs and not focusing on the joy is really part of the problem also in terms of painting just one narrative or one picture of what it is to be black and what it is to be, you know, African, uh, Afri of African descent and everything. So I think 
your thesis is really beautiful <laughs> and that's why I really you. really yeah what really drew drew me to it because ultimately that's also the focus of I know the last episode that we did uh, when I was speaking with you and the other uh, four students in our department was just trying to encapsulate some of that joy and 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 the beauty that comes from that and the creativity and 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 the, like excellence that comes with all the knowledge and different experiences that you bring to the table but then also this podcast overall it's just trying to shine a different light like you were saying trying to shine where they shine, trying to shine where different people shine across the world, across the African continent and in the diaspora broadly. So that's a really beautiful sentiment. And I think we need more of that in this world. Yes, definitely. We need more of that. And also it is for me, like a very important conversation about the diaspora, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because for example, even the field of black geographies is very much focused on North America. And like, so like, where are the geographies of the African continent? Are they black? <laughs> like, is black geographies only focused on the diaspora, on the diaspora in North America? So I'm trying to expand even that discussion, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, the ways in which we think, you know, like Afro, Afro-descendant people or black people in relation to a space is usually a distant relationship, right? As they weren't really, uh, as if they weren't capable of producing spaces or creating spaces, right? And then it's like that they have, like there is a whole continent. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They did it it already. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it becomes even more difficult when you translate that to the diaspora, right? Because the slavery system not only detached people from their continent, but also like put them in a different continent where there were constantly, uh, like there is this sentiment that they don't belong, right? Different from in indigenous people from the Americas, which is like, well, they, they were here forever for like these their territories. Uh, but I always say this, it's like, but, you know, like for the Phantom people and African people have been in the Americas since like the 1500s, 1600s. And my question when, when they keep, well, well no, no, it's like a lot of people are <laughs> questioning me this, mm-hmm. but even in Peru itself, it's like, when you see like a dark skinned black woman walking on the street, like people are gonna think they are from a different continent probably or like a different state, like not really thinking, oh, like Peruvian people, Afro-Peruvian people can be this dark, can be, you know, like part of, of, of the nation. But there are no more Afro-Peruvian people than Peru. So it's like how much indigeneity can we have? Mm-hmm. Like we are this territory. Like we are born in this territory. We have impacted the territory and created the spaces through blackness, like through our black bodies in these different ways. Music is one of those. It's not only the only way in which, you know, like spaces have been reproduced uh, through black people and black knowledge and black epistemologies. Those are present, very much present. But if we keep talking as if these people don't belong to the territory, 
as if they don't have the capacity of creating spaces. If we keep putting them, you know, like not only through pain, but as a geography of detachment, there is like there is no conversation there. And the truth is that they there wouldn't be uh, an American continent without black labor. Just to begin with, there wouldn't be any cities without black labor. So we need to change the conversation to understand, you know, like how do we like you, like I mentioned and then you highlighted, like how do we shine? What do we shine? Because you know, like some theories keep like particularly, you know, like development theories uh keep saying something like people of color are are the margins of society and i actually really challenge that because it's like are we because actually what i'm seeing what i'm feeling what i'm sensing and what i'm reading about is like we were always at the center but life was just trying other way yeah mm-hmm right so like just the question just like you know like what i mentioned before like there wouldn't be cities without indigenous and black labor it means that we were at the center all the time but like you were shining other ways so it's like maybe even changing that way of speaking right like there are the margins like no 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 they were always at the center it's just like how do we choose to shine and I think the project of Black geographies and the colonial Latinx geographies are like very a very good mix to choose where to shine and to like recreate history and the history of the spaces to the new light. Right? It's not only lenses; it's also light. But for me, it's like a beautiful metaphor because it also helps me to understand, like, to move away from the darkness and the pain. Like, where do you shine? Where is the light? In many other layers of your life, right? Like, and, and for me, that's, that's why sounds and sonic, sonic landscapes are very important because it's like, we, not, we cannot only see them, we can sense them, we can dance, we can hear them. Like, we're in the bus and we're listening to this. We're entering a store and we're listening to this. Like, the landscape and the sound is everywhere is you know like hugging us constantly mm-hmm. and for me it's like so there you go yeah <laughs> that's that's how you see black women specializing music constantly and every day in the city and at the same time we don't recognize them as producers of the spaces but it's like they are in your life every day so my thesis goes to that, like to even like the most obvious thing that we just take for granted. It's like, no, there's a black woman producing a space right now. And we need to read them and to appreciate them in that sense as well. And obviously, pain is going to be part of the picture. Like, obviously, like, I believe the majority of Afro Peruvian women work in the informal economy. And um, there's like many, many Afro-Peruvian people who don't have, you know, like higher education. That's also true, but that's not it. 
So I think we need to have those conversations as well. Yeah. No, once again, I think, yeah, I can't wait to read your thesis is all I'm going to say <laughs> is when it's done. It I can't like wait really... to write it. <laughs> I can't wait to finish it. <laughs> Soon. But um, no, that sounds really, no, I, I've already said it before and I'll just say it again, but it's, it's really, it really resonates with me, especially when you're talking about sounds and music. And, and I think the beautiful part about so sounds is like you said, you hear it with you as you move through the city, but then even, you know, now with like streaming services and, and, and stuff like that, you can carry those sounds with you. You can learn about different cultures, even from abroad. Cause like, you know, when I knew we were getting ready to listen to, to get ready for this interview, I actually started listening to some more after there was like an Afro Peruvian, like, uh, like album that I found on Spotify. So as I was moving, as I was going, uh, doing my commute every, every week for the past few, um, for the past month or so, I've been like listening to the sounds nice. and trying to, yeah, trying to like connect to it and understand like the different like nuances between this, like whatever the, the nuances are within this genre of music, within other styles of music and understanding how it all comes together. And there's also a sense of familiarity, you know, when it, you're listening to it, where it feels like, there's a, yeah, there's, there's a lot of connections and you, you can see, you can also find, I can also find myself within the music I was listening to, too. And I think that's what makes it really special and really allows people to connect in this way. So very exciting yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And also like, that's another learning that I have from, from Dr. McKintrick is that, so we do live in a society in which, you know, like black women and Afro-descent women from the diaspora are, never located as knowledge producers, right? Mm -hmm. So, and, and also like we can find them sometimes as producers of a space either. And because a space is usually thought of, you know, like buildings, highways, you know, like, or cities in which like black people are not at the center of. And the thing is that, so where do we find them? Where, where do we find these spaces that we know exist but they're just not part of mainstream history. Uh, so Dr. McKendrick, uh, in her book, The Money Crumbs, she goes to poems, she goes to song lyrics, she goes to the archives as well, but she goes also to the body. Like for example, the braiding, there were also the escapes routes from, you know, like bondage. And that's what I went to, you know, like I went to lyrics. And so it's not only the sounds, it's also like what is being represented in the song as well. And I found some gems, like for example, during colonial times, there's like one particular artist that is probably the, the most important Afro-Peruvian thinker and artist that we have. Her name is Victoria Santa Cruz. And she has an album in which she recreates what African women or Afro-descendant women were singing when they were selling the food. You know? And we're talking about, you know, like colonial times, the 1700s, the 1600s. And these women were already on the street working, you see? Um, so they were part of the city this whole time. They're always been part of the city. And they were part of the city by singing. So they were singing something like, my favorite is about Leonor. And Leonor, she's a picantera. And a picantera means someone that is selling food, like a cooked meal, like a stew with something else. 
and she's walking through like a, this is the recreation of Victoria Santa Cruz, right? But but I believe there is like a lot of information in that in those song lyrics. And she's like, I'm Leonor, and the best picantera in Lima. If you ask around, there is no one better than me. And I was like, that's it. Like Lima is her city. There is no one who is the best but her. Right. So like that's how you find the spaces too. Like sometimes you won't find them, you know, like in a in the name of the street. Because you know, like black women are trying to be completely uh invisibilized in the infrastructures and in the urban infrastructures, but then we have a woman saying, I am the best in the city. And for her to be the best, it means many it has many special inquiries, right? It means that she knows the city. It means that the city knows her. It means that whatever she's telling or whatever she's doing is enjoyed by the city. It means that probably she was walking the same neighborhoods every day. So her voice, her music, her lyrics were known by everyone. It means that probably as a Limeño person, if you wanted some food, you have to wait for Leonor to arrive. So even your daily life, was kind of structured around the music, the singing, and the produce, the products of this person. So like, what more spaces than that? Like what more relationship of the city with the black women than that from the colonial times? And like, when you extrapolate, you know, like those lyrics, those things into what's happening now of having Eva Young being Peru itself, then you see how a space has been produced and reproduced through Black women in different ways. But it's just like, it's kind of fighting against what it feels like regular in the city of like, oh yeah, Black women sell food on the street. It's like, but what is that thing? You know, like, is, is this important for the city? Yes, it is. How important? I love. So, I think that's how we start to, you know, like navigate different ways in which we can see black women as a space producers, as giving meaning to places, right? Because like Lima wouldn't be the city of Lima without Eva Young and without Leonor, who was selling the best food in the city in the 1800s, probably. Like the city owns like a lot of its identity, but not only its identity, a lot of its spaces, the creation of the spaces through black to black women. And and I feel that's when when you are like, and this is maybe like an advice for future, you know, like researchers on these subjects, like we're probably not gonna find them in the regular mainstream products. We're not probably gonna find them on the maps. We're not probably gonna find them on the archives, uh, unless it's we're talking about pain, for example. But we can find them in the poems. We can find them in the lyrics. We can find them in the pictures, in the images. I think it's even better because then we're talking directly to them instead of them through the lenses of someone else. Right? Because whatever you read in the archive of like a fugitive woman, you know, like escaping bondage or whatever, that's not her. That's someone talking about her. 
But when you find them in a poem, in her poem, or in a lyric, then you're talking to them. Like I feel like I'm talking to Leonel constantly <laughs> because she is telling me I am the best in Lima. And who am I to not to believe her? She must be. She must have been. So I think that the exercises of Black geographies like push us to do that. To keep looking because it is obvious that in mainstream, you know, like a scholarship and knowledge and the space productions, we're probably not gonna find them. But if we keep looking, we're definitely gonna find them. And I think the best example for me has been that I've been trying to trace like Criollo culture and Criollo music is something that exists in Lima since the late 1800s. So it's been around for a long, long time now. And I meant, as I mentioned before, Lima is a very musical city. So in my mind, it's like, so Lima is a musical city. Criollo music is very important for the city. And Afro-Peruvian women are very important for Criollo music. So definitely, definitely, I will find them on the media, on the newspapers, on the magazines, because like, when, when you want to know about a concert and you know, want to know about a new radio show or whatever, like in the 1900s, you go to the newspapers and to the magazines to look for them. And I kid you not, I've been doing archives for at least since the beginning of the 1900s into 19, the 1950s, and I haven't found them. Wow. Not even one mention of Afro-Peruvian women in the newspaper, not even one. Mm. related to music I found images of them as cooks I found images of them as the help that I found but as music producers as music producers I haven't and I know they are there like I know they once again what do you shine right so now my research is becoming a research of absences it's like okay so like in, for this moment like no data is data because it's basically proving my point that they were there I know they were there but they are not in mainstream media so where do I find it I go to the lyrics I go to the pictures I go to the images I go to the poems I go to family archives because they like their families were there <laughs> they were present so like they know so I go to oral stories. I go to storytelling because we have to find them and we know they're there. It's just like we, can con we can't continue looking for them in the places where they were actually intentionally being invisibilized. Yeah. So we have to move. Anything Black geographic as a methodology itself is very good to help you like to, you know, like move away from frustration of like, why the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> they are not present in mass media. <laughs> why? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I know why. But at the same time, I refuse to say, oh, this is so sad. Like, okay, so they are not there. Let me find them. They must be in other, in other spaces. They have been space producers and place producers. So that's, that's also like, one of the other main goals of Pay you know, like not, not only 
talking about these women and the importance for the city, but also talking about how these women are being represented. Like if they are not being represented in mass media, but they are present in the family archives, and these are very valuable as well. And we should recognize these as part of the history of the city as well. You know, so even challenging, you know, like the traditional way of archiving. So, but that's what we have to do as researchers of black population, right? Once again, to move away from histories of pain. Yeah. Yeah, once again, there's a lot to unpack there. Already going back to what you're saying about braiding and and clothes and uh, or like you're talking about braiding but the other thing that came to me was thinking about clothing and and how that encapsulate culture yeah. but that's like a whole other conversation <laughs> a whole other episode that we could do but then even what you're saying actually yeah. my supervisor yeah Walker, one of my supervisors she actually focused on the clothing of afro-peruvian women in colonial times really no that's fascinating yeah, no, yeah. that's really cool because Okay, yeah, we'll have to talk about that another day. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's very cool, very interesting. But then even what you're saying that like Lima wouldn't be like Lima without what you're saying about Eva Young, but then also without Leonor and that, and that timeline and histories and how they play together, I think is really, really fascinating. But even we were saying about exploring black geographies that you have to, you can't rely on the mass media, unfortunately, <laughs> to like capture no. these stories and shine the light on these people. You really have to dig, like you're really digging deep to go into like family archives in order to figure out what's going on, especially when you know that these people were there and the impact they had on the city, but um, it's not fully represented in, in a way that's, yeah, those captured for everybody. You have to dig deep. So that's a really important lesson and a key takeaway. And but one thing that that made me think of, um, and I know we're kind of running, <laughs> we've been yeah. running uh, near the end of our time together. It's just that you know, given the importance of first of all these sonic landscapes about like Afro-Peruvian women, Criollo music, like what can I don't know if this is the city's job, but just thinking about like what could the city of Lima do to fully like preserve and continue to like celebrate them more uh, like this music and this um, culture more so that even more people know about them, not just within, I guess, Lima, where you're experiencing it every day, but let's say, and in order to really fully shine a light on, on the on the impact that, you know, Afro-Peruvian women are having, like, and on the city, but then also like beyond for people like me <laughs> abroad trying to learn more about it. How do we, how can we learn more about this or what can be done? Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to do something. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm yeah. just starting. Yeah. Um, for me, the most important part is stories and these histories to be known, but not only through me, but through them, right? They are the protagonists of this story. I'm just like a messenger in, in, in this way. Um, so what I'm hoping is for my teachers to be, to have a public impact on well on policy of course but also you know like to try to discuss these subjects with the municipality of Lima with the different museums like there is like an Afro-Peruvian Afro National Museum that I'm hoping to collaborate very soon and just trying to you know like portray and shine them as much as I can and not only the musicians but like Afro-Peruvian women in general as part of the story and the history and the place of Lima, 
Uh, so I think like talking to the municipality of Lima, probably having more lectures and more classes, focus on Afro-Peruvian women in the city of Lima, not only, you know, like Afro-Peruvian people in the country is like, yeah, that's one thing. But these women are very important for the city. So like, let's go in depth. Like, let's have a class on, you know, like urban histories of Lima focus on Afro-Peruvian women. Like, let's retell the story of the city through this new, this new light. I think that's something that I can do. And I feel like other researchers can do as well. Uh, right now, Afro-Peruvian women are very well known as musicians in the city. Uh, and that's great, but at the same time, that also sometimes box them as the only thing they can do well. Mm. They are black, they are musicians. They can do anything else, which is not true. Uh, so I think even though my thesis is like going very much in depth on this relationship between music, space, gender, and blackness, uh, I also think that is a good way of saying you know, like we are excelling in this because we are capable of excelling in different things. This is just one thing. So also maybe, you know, like trying to, re to have an open discussion about the places that African women hold in the country, not only in the city, but like how the country sees them, right? And like to, fi to fight those stereotypes as well. Um, so, well, you can read me coming soon, uh, <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> hopefully more sooner than later, uh, but also like you can go to my Instagram, Roxana Escobar for things, because I publish like a lot of the research that I'm doing, or, like, I will, I will keep publishing while I'm doing like field work more about these subjects, uh, but there are many people like, for example, my supervisor, Tamara Walker, she also works with African women, so you can read her to have a little better sense from the history, from history of African women. One of my favorite scholars, she's a Peruvian scholar, her name is Maribel Arrelucea. She's like probably one of the first one who has actually started reading Afro-Peruvian women and African women as agents of their own liberty. So she's very great. She's excellent. And on the music component, on the music component, like we have many, many of the Peruvian musicians that are very well known. Eva Young is like very, very well known, like internationally well known. The other one, her name is Susana Vata, which is also great. Uh, she won a, a Grammy, like she did an album, an album during, during the pandemic. Mm -hmm like in, in a room in her house and she won a Grammy <laughs> for that. Amazing. <laughs> but she's like fucking great. Uh, there's like one particular band that I adore that is called Nova Lima, mm -hmm. which is like Afro-Peruvian rhythms mixed with like electronic music, which I really, really liked. And... Uh, if you want to know about more criollo music, like Afro-Peruvian women doing criollo music, one of the main representatives, her name is Lucha Reyes. Mm -hmm. uh, she's a great singer, great, great singer. And then it's also Rosa Guzman, 
she also does great theology music. And for example, Rosa Guzman, she's like a, a very good example of my own research because she has an album, like she being a criollo singer, a black women criollo singer. She has an album recreating Andean sounds. So it's just beautiful, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's everything all there together and it's just beautiful. Um, there is one movement that is happening in Lima that is called Les Cotites. Uh, and they are like these non-binary musicians, black musicians, like doing very great things and generating great sounds. So they are basing their, their sounds and their rhythm on Afro-Peruvian rhythms, but just like interpreting them in different other ways, which is great too. Uh, Les Cotites. So it will be L-E-S-C-O-T-I-T-E-S. -E yeah, so you can also find them. Um, what else? Uh, and well, Victoria Santa Cruz, she's like my favorite. And she has one album that is called Orgullosamente Afroperuana, which means proudly Afro-Peruvian women. Mm -hmm. And then in that album, you will find the lyrics of the songs that I'm analyzing, uh, which once again, is like a, re a reinterpretation of the history that she, you know, like the studies that she made on Afro-Peruvian women or like African women during the colonial times. And she made those stories, lyrics, right? So it's very interesting because it's like, how an Afro-Peruvian women and contemporary Afro-Peruvian women retold Afro-Peruvian women from colonial times. So once again, it's like, I'm talking to them. I'm not talking to a representation of them by other people, which is like very powerful for my thesis and very important. And your last question is, how can people get in contact with me? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> So well, you can you can contact me through Instagram. I have a professional account. Once again, it's Roxana Escobar fourteen. But you can also send me an email to my uh, U of T email, which is Roxana at mail.utoronto.ca. Yeah, I'm, I'm always happy to collaborate with other scholars in these subjects. I'm always happy to be present, you know, like, and to talk about my thesis because I love my thesis, but at the same time, I feel that this type of knowledge is the knowledge that, to be honest, right now, it should be shining more. So please hire me. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode. For this episode's show notes and other resources, make sure to visit www.urbanlimitrofe.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe and follow the podcast on social media at Urban Limitrofe to stay up to date and stay tuned for a new episode coming your way. Until next time.